You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I have a page number for you if you don't know where that is. Don't feel funny about that or awkward about that. Uh, page 976 of the Bible that's in the seat uh, in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you're, um, you would like one, we would love for you to have the one that you just grabbed. If you grab that one in the seat uh, bottom in front of you, it's yours. You can put your name in the front and make it your own. Page 976 is where we are uh, this morning in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I have a couple other places I'm going to have you turn over the course of the morning. Uh, but for most, the most part, Ephesians 4 is going to be home base for us in these next few minutes. I think that uh, you are who you really are at home. For the most part, I think you're comfortable there. Um, you don't have to fake it at home. It's one of the things that's nice about being home is you don't have to fake it like other places sometimes you find yourself having to fake it. You don't have to glad hand at home. You don't have to um, somehow treat someone different than how you really feel. Um, at home, you can be pretty open about how you feel. Um, you don't have to try and be someone that you're not at home. That's something that's nice about home is you, you can wear that old nasty t-shirt that you would not wear in public and even around your fellow family members. They're stuck with you and they're stuck with that t-shirt, so you can just wear it. Uh, you can say what's on your mind, and that can be scary. But in a good way, you can say what's on your mind uh, under some restraint, some, under some control. Uh, you're able to share your thoughts at home, ideally. You can laugh about something that's really funny. Some places you th- might think something's funny that would just be awkward to laugh, you know. Scary to laugh. You may not be... be uh, feel awkward if you're the only person that laughed, you know, like Ginevra Odd every Sunday. I pay her. I don't know if you know that she's on the salary as a hired laugher. Yeah, good job this morning. She's already got it going. Thank you. You can cry at home, right? I mean, that's something that's nice about being home is you can just totally be yourself. Um, you can be quiet at home without the pressure of feeling like you have to talk. You know, it's one of those... You know you've broken through in a relationship when you can drive with a gal that you're dating and go for hours without talking. You've broken through. Christy and I were married before we got to that point, um, and we thought it was a problem when we could drive for hours, but there's actually kind of a peace in that, isn't it, where you can just be and you can spend some time in your own mind without uh, struggling with someone's expectations. Something that's really comfortable at home. Ideally... Home is a safe place where you can be just you. I want to introduce to you the notion this morning that church should also be safe and comfortable. I'm saying that with the emphasis of a big, pregnant, awkward pause because I want you to get this. Church should be a place where you're comfortable and safe. If I were to say that, I want to ask the question, would you believe me? I have an old Bible that belonged to my granddaddy. Uh, I never met him. He died when I was a year old. He met me, but I don't recall him. I was a little little baby still. Um, but he was a, a chaplain in the Army. He was a minister of music in churches over the years. Um, he leaves, left me a, a rich heritage, although I didn't know him. I have a Bible that belonged to him in 1950. And I know it belonged to him in 1950 because he wrote in the front that his New Year's resolutions for 1950 
One of them was to lead one person to the Lord every day in 1950, which is kind of a cool to hear that my granddad had a burden for souls like that. But his second one there has, has stuck with me over the years. To be the same person at home that I am at church was one that his, was important to him. To have a fidelity between the man that his family would see at church with the man that his family would see at home. I've, it's always meant a lot to me over the years, and it's, it's something that I uh, have tried to aspire to. I don't want my family to see uh, what really amounts to a phony in a guy that has a certain personality, a church personality, and then has a home personality that is vastly different. I, I thought I've, I've really enjoyed that resolution over the years, but I want to present what might be an equally worthy resolution to you. My granddad's was to be the same person at home that I am at church. Here's one that would be just really crazy and maybe more dangerous. To be the same person at church that you are at home. Wouldn't that be cool? It's sad that in reality, for many folks, I think church is the place where we feel the least safe. It's not everyone. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, man, that's, that's not me, not by a mile. But some of you are sitting here thinking, he's reading my mail. It's been a recurring theme for me over the years is hearing from people and seeing that the angst that people carry into corporate gatherings with the church, that sadly the church is the place where some feel the least safe and the place where they and maybe we to some extent can be the least ourselves. I'm hoping that today's message will encourage you and equip you with maybe a way to begin to change that, starting with your mouths, starting with how you speak to each other as influenced by how you view one another. Ephesians 4 is a beautiful passage that's going to help us with that, I believe. Uh, I'll give you a big picture summary of Ephesians 4. I need to get to it myself. I'm sitting here in Corinthians for no reason in the world. Ephesians 4. There's a big picture approach to this section. I'm going to read verses 25 through 32, but I want you to begin to look for something. I want you to have a sense of the furniture in this passage. We're going to spend our morning in verse 25. But this passage as a whole, verses 25 through 32, is a call to live like the holy people that we are. Okay, it's not a list of requirements that you have to achieve in order to be God's. That's in order to belong to God's or to our God. Let me rephrase that. It's not a list of hoops that you have to jump in order to be His. Put it, put it to you that way. But they are wool to the sheep. They are the, the product of who you are in Christ. This wonderful list here in verses 25 through 32 describing what life would be like for the new man. For those of us that have put on Christ, have become the church together, this is what you look like. This is what you move like. This is what your lives should be like. This is what life should be like together in this passage. In this next six weeks or so, we'll deal with, first of all, this week and next week with how we talk to one another. The week after that, we'll deal with conflict. How can we deal with conflict in a godly way? Is conflict uh, part and parcel to life together? Okay, some good questions that we're going to deal with week after next. Uh, how we're to share with one another also comes from this passage. 
And then lastly, how, how we can just be good old kind to one another. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. One of the things I want you to notice as I read it, though, each of these things follow a common pattern. Okay, there's a negative exhortation and a positive exhortation. Okay, and then there's a motivating clause in each of these passages that I'm about to read. Now, that some might over, overflow into two verses, but this first one all sits in one verse, and you can look for the pattern. Paul is so linear. I enjoy Paul. He's just a linear dude. Okay? So a negative exhortation, a positive exhortation. In one of the cases, those are switched, but you'll see them both. And then a motivating clause. Okay? So here we go. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see it, the layout there. You see the negative uh, exhortation, the positive exhortation, and then the motivating clause for we're members of one another. We're going to spend more time on that one in a moment. Be angry and do not sin. There's the negative. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his, with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30 is the only one that doesn't follow this, this, that pattern I just described to you. And it's sort of an overlying umbrella, overreaching umbrella around the passage. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now in verse 32, or 31 and 32, it resumes that pattern. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so we're going to spend these next few minutes on verse 25. We're going to spend these next few weeks in the passage I just read. So you can study ahead. You can totally do that. You can like read ahead and make notes, and you'll get a lot out of these next few weeks. But this morning we'll be in verse 25, and I'm going to reread it so that we're really immersed in it. Okay. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're going to deal with in a moment the negative exhortation, the positive exhortation, and the motivating clause. But first of all, I want to show you something. There's a context for this passage. Turn to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. And some of you will be glad to know that I have a page number for you that is for that as well. Because Zechariah is not an often visited passage. Um, 796 in the Bible that's sitting in the uh, seat in front of you. Or if a lot of your ESVs, that page number will work. If it doesn't, then you're on your own. You can use the table of contents. That's totally, be comfortable with using the table of contents. Okay? Zechariah chapter 8. This passage, especially the positive exhortation there in verse 25, uh, is a direct quote of Zechariah chapter 8. It won't read exactly the same in this passage, but it will read exactly the same in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Okay, but we're going to read it because it is the context for this encouragement. Let me give you a little bit of background for Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet that was born in Babylon. Okay, if you know the story, you know the big picture story, you know there was the exodus, you know there's the plagues, there's the deliverance from Egypt. Well, even further back than that, about 2,000 years before Christ, there's Abraham. About 1,500 years before Christ, there's the exodus. Okay, and about 
a thousand years before Christ, King David is installed as the first official king, uh, or King Saul is installed as the first official king of Israel about a thousand years before Christ. Fast forward about uh, 300 years, about 700 years before Christ, become the Assyrian invasion to the north in Israel and the Assyrian um, exile uh, for Israel in the north. And then about 150 years later or so, about uh, 500 B.C., something like that, 500 years before Christ, uh, come the, uh, the south is exiled to Babylon. Well, during that period, there's a young man. They believe he's a young man born named Zechariah. And Zechariah here is prophesying about what life is going to be like when they're returned home, when they're restored back to Jerusalem. Okay, this guy has seen the worst. Now, granted, if he was born in Babylon, he didn't see the actual, actual being ripped from their homes, but I'm sure he heard about it from his parents. In some ways, he had a front row seat to the terrors of the exile, but then prophetically, a beautiful picture of what life was going to be like when they were restored back to Jerusalem. Okay, right now you're probably thinking, how in the world does this connect to Ephesians chapter 4? It's really delightful. I mean, this is a, a gorgeous passage of Scripture and a beautiful connection. So let me share it with you in, in Zechariah chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Remember, this is what life is to be like in, in the Jerusalem with the newly restored remnant that's going to be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple and to repopulate life there in Jerusalem. Okay, For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, he's speaking of the exile, and I did not relent, said the Lord of hosts, so again I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to those of Judah. Now listen how he describes this beautiful, good place. Fear not. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. There it is in the Septuagint. It's directly translated in Ephesians 4. Speak the truth to one another. Here's some more context. Render in your gates judgments that are true. Make for peace. Speak the truth with each other. Deal with true judgments in your gates. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all those things I hate, declares the Lord. You get some sense of how the Lord feels about truth and what he has in store for this restored people. Let's continue. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Listen to what he says next. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Hey, let's go to Jerusalem and see how awesome it is in Jerusalem, this good place where God has restored this people, where they walk in truth and peace and they render true judgments in their gates. Let's go. I'm going if you want to go with me. 
And listen, listen what unfolds next. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is what life is going to be like in this restored community. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you like little kids saying, let me come with you guys. Let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. It's awesome in Jerusalem. There's this true environment, this true context that's populated by people who are moving and brokering in nothing but truth. And I want to be in that place. Man, before we even really consider the negative exhortation the positive exhortation, the motivating clause that comes from this passage. Let's just consider the context in Paul's mind is this beautiful, newly populated Jerusalem where ten men from every nation marvel. Ten men from every nation are tugging at the robe of a Jew saying, Can I be with you guys in this true place where you broker in nothing but truth? For God's with you, and it looks and sounds pretty awesome. Man, this is a beautiful context before we even look at the details. A beautiful context. Before we consider the exhortations and the motivating clause, consider the source of the reference and the implications. This is the profound point. Before we ever even get into the details, a true community of people is different and attractive. Hear that, church. A true community of people is different from anywhere else in the world. And it's attractive. You going with me? Can I come with you? Man, if somebody wants to talk evangelism programs, how about starting there? How about starting with an evangelism program that focuses on being true with one another in the church? What a great place. What an altogether different environment. All right, so let's climb into the, this passage. We're going to look first at the negative exhortation. Okay, the negative exhortation is the first phrase. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Now, this is the same language, therefore points back to the language in the previous section that we've looked at in past weeks. Okay, it's talking about putting off some stuff, putting off the old Gentile ways, the old unbelieving ways. You remember that passage from a few weeks ago, and putting on the new man and the new identity. This is the same language that we're dealing with right here, of a term that, that might, might help you be the, a term uh, that I like, it's shedding. Shedding the old man, having shed falsehood. Uh, when one of our families uh, was um, on the field in Kazakhstan, we had a chance to visit with them. It was uh, Jake and Steph Huck. We had a chance to visit with them. I had the chance to visit when it was winter there. And winter in Kazakhstan is like, I mean, it's not like winter in North Texas. I mean, it's like negative degrees and stuff. You go out with fur and stuff on. I mean, crazy looking hats and you don't care how crazy they are because they're warm i mean they're that cool you know they have the flaps on them and stuff you know something you'd never wear around here it's cold and what's funny too is um 
It's that cold outside, and then they'll come inside, and they might take off their outer coat, but then they're still wearing these uh, sweaters and stuff, and it's like 100 degrees in their, in their apartments. It's like zero or negative degrees outside and like 100 degrees in their apartments, and they're sitting around wearing sweaters and stuff, and they look completely comfortable. And I'm stripping them off as fast as I can. And if I could take my shirt off completely, I would. It would just be a faux pas to do that in a foreign land and a mission work, don't you think? Don't you imagine? <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> but, man, I'm talking shedding. I want to shed that stuff because I'm in a different place. I want to shed that winter coat in that hot house. Get this thing off of me is kind of the thought here. Get that old Gentile identity and those Gentile ways off of me. I don't need them anymore because I'm a different person in a different place. I think the tense is nice here. The tense is important. Uh, the, the, the sense is that it's something that you've already done, having put away falsehood. I think it connects back to the previous passage that we looked at a few weeks ago where this former manner of life or this former identity is put off, but the former manner of life still needs some work. It's like that thing that sticks to the bottom of your shoe that you can't get off, like gum. You know, this pesky thing that, I mean, the more I try to get it on my fingers, that's the way the old manner of life is. It still sticks to you even though you have a new identity. And that we have to be, God's people have to be about the work of shedding that stuff like we're shedding that coat in that hot room. We have to be about the work of laying it aside and putting it off and shedding it. And the way we do that is this next positive thing. We put away the speech that was part of the old life. Okay, we don't just stand there without clothes. We're actually donning new garments. And these new garments are in the positive exhortation in this next phrase. Each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Instead of walking in deception and falsehood like the old man did in the old identity, instead... Each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, let's identify the neighbor. The neighbor in the Zechariah passage is a fellow Jew. It's written to Jews that are going to be repopulating this context in in Jerusalem. And we're talking about their neighbor is going to be speaking the truth with their neighbor. There's the implication, of course, you're going to speak truth with those who aren't part of you. You're going to be a broker of truth, period. But the context here is we're talking about speaking the truth with God's people. It's reinforced by the motivating phrase that we're going to look at in a moment. That third phrase, for members of one another. It's not talking about being members together of the human race. We're talking about being members of one another in the church. We're talking about speaking the truth with church folk. Let that hit for a minute. Let that just sit in this awkward moment again. We're talking about speaking the truth with church folk. The place and the people where oftentimes we feel the least authentic and we are the least true is the place and the people where we are to be the truest. Let that hit you for a minute. It is the place and the people where we are to be The truest. And the sense here is that it takes work. Because this putting on, each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. In the Greek there, what we're looking at is a present active imperative that gives a sense that we're to make an 
ongoing practice of speaking the truth with one another. It's work. And it's something that we, we have to, to do again tomorrow. It's an ongoing active thing that we're to be characterized by. Now let me give you some, some, some context behind the Zechariah passage. There's some ancient Jewish ethical teaching about what it means to speak the truth with one another. And this is illuminating. This is really cool. Okay? i got to get off my stool. I'm tired of sitting on my stool this morning because it's so good. Well, anytime I put that aside, you pay special attention because it's about to get good. Okay. All right. Now, this Jewish ethical tradition behind the Zechariah passage conveyed the sense in speaking the truth with your neighbor, i.e. your fellow God people, okay, Jew in that context, in our context here, fellow Ephesian, in our context immediate, fellow brother and sister in Christ, the folks that are sitting behind you and in front of you and around you. The tradition conveyed the sense that your neighbor has a right to the truth. Your neighbor has a right to the truth. To not speak the truth with your neighbor slash fellow church member is to rob them of the right and the freedom to respond to the real situation. And I want y'all to get that. To not speak the truth with your fellow church member with your neighbor that's sitting around you right now or who may be part of us and just not here with us this morning, to not speak the truth, to not broker truth with them is to rob them of the right and the freedom to respond to the real situation. And here's the thing that's really, really, if, if you want to kind of connect to their ethic, what that means is when you don't speak the truth with your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ, you dehumanize them. You rob them of their freedom to move well. Now, here's where I think a lot of us have a problem is we maybe have tried that before and it didn't go well. So we think, well, I don't want to speak the truth with my neighbor because it's just going to go south. <laughs> right? Well, here's the sad reality. If you don't speak the truth with your neighbor, here's a guarantee. It'll never go north. You may have a fear, I can't speak the truth with my neighbor because when I did or when I have, it goes south and things get worse and we experience conflict and conflict must be bad, right? I hope you'll see that conflict is an opportunity for the gospel. But I know what you're saying. It's a scary place to enter into something that's harder. It's easier to just glad hand one another, isn't it? Man, when we speak the truth to our neighbor, we may find that it indeed does go south. But realize this, when you don't speak the truth with your neighbor, when you withhold, when you are glad-handing, when you are insincere, when you are not truth-speaking with your brother and sister in Christ, you're not giving the person the chance to respond to the truth. You're not even treating them like a human. Man, church, people, we need to hear this. Wow. Wow. To speak the truth with each other is to treat each other like humans treat each other. To give each other the freedom to maybe do the right thing. To maybe respond well and say, man, I needed to hear that. 
Now, the motivating clause. We've looked at the negative exhortation, the positive exhortation. The negative exhortation is having put away falsehood. The positive is each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Here's the motivating clause. Here's why we're supposed to do that. Because we are members of one another. We are members of one another. We speak the truth because we're members of one another. This language, members of one another, is body language. And I mean like human body language. Like Paul uses the imagery of the church and the membership that we have with one another as a relationship like between a hand and an arm. Like this connectedness and like this organic experience that we're to have with one another. That's what he's describing here is body language. The reason we want to be true with one another is because we're part of the same body, the body of Christ. One of our ancient uh, early church fathers, um, his name was Chrysostom, wrote about this passage. Listen to what he says, cool, 300-something A.D. He said, if the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? I love ancient, simple thought. So well put. He also said, if the nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? And there's a wholeness to our bodies. There's a wholeness to our bodies that keeps one part from moving dishonestly with the other parts. And the same should be true for the body and the bride of Christ. Deception and dishonesty is the old stained garments that we were to shed. And that we are to shed. And that we wear instead truth with one another. We speak the truth with each other because we're members of one another. Connected to one another like the eye and the foot like the nose and the mouth, like the tongue and the stomach. Now, this morning, all I have for you is, first of all, an appeal. And secondly, an application. The appeal, I want you to look at one passage with me. And then the application, I want you to look at another passage. I'll tell you what those are so you can have them ready. First of all, the appeal. Home base is not necessarily this passage, but I would like for you to see it. James chapter 1. And the application is from 1 John. Chapters 1 and 2. First of all, the appeal. I have been just so excited about sharing this with you. It's not even a hard appeal. I just think it's just wonderful. I, I just cannot wait to share this reality, this thought. And it may just be like, uh, duh, but I just enjoy. You might, you might be like, I already knew that. But God's words are true. Okay, this is the appeal. God's words are absolutely and completely true. So should yours be. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. True, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Man, I'm thinking about, if I'm going to just take that at face value, I'm going to look at the first words that are spoken in the Bible and the last words that are spoken in the Bible. The first words that are spoken in the Bible are creative and life-giving. And the last words that are spoken in the Bible are promise-making 
and they're true. Let me show you how true. The first words that are spoken in the Bible, let's see. And God said, let there be light. And you wonder how true they were? The next words, and there was light. Any doubt? Any doubt, at least about those first words? He said, let there be light, and there was. Instantaneously true, his words. They are creation-making. They are creative-giving. They are are creation-giving. They are life-giving. He says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He said it, and guess what? Man was because his words are true. In the very beginning, his words were creative words. In the very end, his words are promise-making words. The last words that are spoken in our Bible are spoken by God the Son. He said, surely I am coming soon. His words are true. Every word of God proves true. Cover to cover. Enjoy this promise that's made to a man named Abram. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a room full of the truth of that passage right here. We're a product of the reality that every word proves true. Man, God's words are absolutely and completely true every single time. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no deception in God. There's no dishonesty in God. There's no shifting shadows. There's no variation. He is absolutely the father of lights, and every word that he says proves true. Now look at the, listen to the next verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. He is absolutely true, and he even wrought us in truth. So here's the simple appeal. If God's words are light-creating and life-giving, and if his words are so true that they are also um, life-sustaining and life-blessing as he follows through on promises that he makes, so shouldn't his people's words be true? All of them. Shouldn't his people's words be life-giving and light-bringing? Shouldn't his people's words be life-sustaining and life-blessing? Shouldn't his people broker truth? That's my appeal. And here's an application. 1 John chapter 1. This is the charge, the call, what I'm asking of you, what I'm begging of you. Be your truest with each other. 
be your truest with each other. And I mean, yes, with fellow church folk. Be your truest with each other. John had plenty to say about this. I will never forget, these are some of the, this passage was uh, one of the earliest sermons that Brad Cardwell preached at Cross Point Fellowship, and it was shaping for us as a church. Listen to this passage. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. Okay, we know that. He's Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow, shifting shadow due to change. He's consistent. He's holy light and he's holy true. Those are synonymous. You'll see that in this passage. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, light and truth are synonymous there. Walking in the light is what he's talking about. And he says, we, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the point of that passage that I want you to get. He's light. We know it. We don't doubt it. So we walk in light. He's light. So we, his people, also Walk in light. We don't walk in darkness and shadows and shifting deception and hiding from one another and withholding from one another and deceiving one another and talking about each other behind each other's back. That does not happen in the church because we are a light-walking people because our God is light. Let me show you this, though. Just right across the page, two verses. Look in verse 9 of chapter 2. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. What's synonymous there with hate in that passage contextually is you being deceptive with them. Hiding from them. Hiding your true feelings from them. Even. Listen. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, though, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See, stumbling happens when there are hidden things that you can't see. There's no stumbling for light-walking people. So we're not going to stumble on one another. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's the point of that passage. The first point of the first passage, he's light, so we walk in light because we're his. And here's the second point. We love our brother and sister by walking truthfully in the light with one another. Maybe it was Brad's sermon. Maybe God used some other things in, um, in us over the years. But something that we've always placed a high priority on was being the same guy, or at least I've placed a high priority on, I know Brad and Scott have as well, of being the same guy up here that we are with you in private or with our family at home. Maybe it's that quote that I heard from my, or read in the front of my uh, granddaddy's Bible. Maybe that's something that influenced me, but I've placed a very high priority on being true and open with you. And I... um, Christy has been concerned over the years that that may open me up to being vulnerable um, to somebody using something against me. I've shared some things from the pulpit over the years. 
about Christy and I struggling in our marriage, about having to work really hard at our marriage at times, sometimes harder than others. And you know what's been funny is folks in our church have not said, oh, I'm out of here. I, I didn't want to hear from a broken guy. I want to hear from a fixed guy. What I heard instead was people saying, man, what a relief to know that I'm not a Martian, that you can love Jesus and still struggle in some things. And I didn't share those things for some measure of therapy for me. I shared them because I want to be the same guy right here that I am at home. I don't want those two that are sitting right there to think I'm a phony. So it's made for sort of a different feel here on a Sunday morning at times where people are like, oh, I kind of didn't want to hear that this guy, this speaker guy's marriage is difficult. We've shared other things over the years. I struggle with anger. I've had times over the years where I've struggled with anger. I have no problem sharing this with you, and it's not for therapy. It's so that maybe you will be invited to realize that you can be true here. You can be comfortable here. We're all a people in process every single one of us. So here's something I want to encourage you with this thought. It may challenge you. It may not encourage you at all. It may challenge you. I want you to think about this. What do our workmates and friends think, and our neighbors maybe think, when they see a completely different work you than church you? See, some folks may not want to invite their workmates or their neighbors or friends to church because they, they know that their friends are going to see somebody that's totally different than they are at work. See, there's not a fidelity between the people. You've got to act like somebody that you're not. You've got to put on airs. You've got to put on a, a facade. And then folks, I think, eventually bail out of church because airs and facades are exhausting. And then we don't want to gather with a bunch of phonies because if we're really honest with ourselves, then eventually we say, man, I'm done with this. The most authentic place I ever experienced is in my cubicle at L3. So I'm done with church. Man, it happens. It happens. But I want you to think about this. What do our workmates and friends and neighbors think if they see a completely different work you, quotation marks, than church you? They think you're a phony. Okay? You're either a phony there or you're a phony here, and they're probably going to suspect here. And guess what they're going to think about your message? And guess what they're going to think about your Lord? There should be a fidelity between the work you and the home you and the neighborhood you and the church you. Let me take it to the next level. What are your kids going to think when they see a different home you than they see church you? You think your kids want to be in the faith after that? You think your kids want to then walk and go be part of a church and be a phony just like you've been? Man, I don't think that does anything for the future of the faith when kids see a different home dad than they see church dad. Man, I want to encourage you in two things. Raise the bar at home. I get what my granddaddy was saying. I want to be the same person at home that I am at church. I get what he's saying. I want to raise the bar at home so that I treat my family with the same respect that I would treat a stranger or a fellow church member. Because sometimes we take the most liberties with those who are closest to us and talk to them like they're pieces of trash. So I get what he's saying. Raise the bar at home. But how about this? Let me add that note to that notion. In addition to raising the bar at home and being the same person at home that you are at church, how about this? How about bring who you are at church into alignment with who you really are? 
to where your workmates and your friends and your children can see this frail, feeble, but true journey together. And they can see growth in you as you just strive together with one another. And you work through hard stuff as you speak to one another about true things. And you reckon with true things that happen between one another. Instead of just glad-handing each other. Man, I'm not so dumb to think that there aren't kitchen tables on Sunday at noon where the conversation isn't about, man, can you believe what they did this morning? Can you believe what she said? Can you believe what he was wearing? Man, all the conversations that can happen over a lunch table. Here's a good diagnostic test for you if you're walking in truth. Let me encourage you this. Here's a good diagnostic test for you. A good test of whether you're speaking the truth and walking in the light with one another. If you find yourself wanting to talk to others about one another, you should be willing to talk to that person that you want to talk about. How about speak truth to one another starting there? If you want to talk about somebody and you have this compulsion, man, I feel like I really need to go talk to somebody about this other person. Or can you believe what they did? Let's start with going to talk to that person. If it's so strong in you that you have to do it. Now, the reason I can identify with it is because I feel that too. I've had, I told Scott this this morning, I've had a handful of people over the years um, that I have vented with. And I felt like, man, I need to have somebody I can vent with. Don't, don't you? Don't I? You know, because ministry's hard, you know, and life's hard, and I need to have a couple people that I can vent to. Well, let me just share this thought with you. About to reach 50, I turned 50 this year in December, so I'm it's taken me a while to figure this out. Venting's overrated. Venting's overrated. And it takes whoever I'm venting about. It, 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 it actually, what it does in, in venting is it creates a courtroom environment where the one who is actually on trial doesn't even know it's going on. Isn't even there. Is that the kind of friendship that we want to have with one another? We can vent to one another about someone, try and persecute, and not persecute, try and, uh, I have a judge in here, she could help me, try and, what, convict, yes, <laughs> try and convict someone without them even being in there, without them being in the, in, in the conversation. That's not moving truthfully, people. And man, the venting's overrated. Venting, in in actuality, doesn't help the situation. If I have somebody I feel like I ought to be venting about, then I, if I'm going to speak truth with my neighbor, I should go to them and treat them like a human. (gasps) Right? I can treat them like a human, and guess what? There's a high probability it could be harder before it's better. (laughs) But guess what? It'll never be better if I just vent. Because you know what I'm doing when I'm venting, really? I'm venting, I'm mustering the wherewithal to glad hand them next time I see them. That's what I'm doing. When I call somebody, I say, man, I got to talk to you about this guy. He's so on my nerves. He's driving me crazy. And that person says, I know, man, but, you know, you got to do the Christian thing, you know. So the Christian thing is just mustering the energy to go, hey, man, it's good to see you next time I see that person. 
Good to see you. <laughs> I like those shoes. You got nothing else to say of any meaning, substance. So, man, nice shoes. True people should be different. You know what's really cool about that? Is when you have an environment where people aren't doing that, where people are treating each other like humans, you're going to have to work through some hard stuff. But here's the crazy scandal of it all. Ten people from every nation are going to say, can I be part of that? Everywhere I move, there's deception. Everywhere I move, there are people talking about one another. Everywhere I move, there are people scheming about one another. There are people venting to one another about one another. Except for this one place, can I be part of that group? Can I be part of a true people? That you must have a true God that's in the center of you because you don't move that way when everywhere else they do. How about that? How about that for evangelism? How about that for a reason to move in truth with one another? Man, raise the bar at home and work, yes. But how about fidelity and truth with your church brothers and sisters? Absolute and open vulnerability and honesty with one another. No errors. No facades. They're exhausting. No glad-handing, no faking, no deception. Just real people searching after a real God together. Man, that's attractive. 